Please turn them in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. A young man came up to me this morning and said, Pastor John, you're preaching a lot more verses than you normally do today. Three verses instead of two, so here you go. 1 Thessalonians 2, 6 through 8. 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. If you remember, the church started out of great adversity, but that adversity has made them even stronger in the faith, and this early epistle is written to encourage these believers and to also help them understand more about the eternal things of God. Paul began this letter by giving thanks to God for these Thessalonian Christians, and then Paul commended the wonderful example that these believers had set for others to follow after. See, Jesus saved them, and now they are all in, rightly so. Now, the worthless idols of their former life are meaningless compared to Christ, and now they're all about living for the glory and pleasure of Christ. They get it, see? They get it. They understand that Christ is all that truly matters now. And if you have Him, you have everything for life now and for all of eternity. They get it. And here in chapter 2, Paul's now having to defend himself and his companions, Timothy and Silvanus, against the false teachers and the haters who were lying about him. And here in today's passage, we see what a true pastor, shepherd, preacher should look like as we look at what Paul says here. Paul's just said that they didn't flatter and they weren't covetous, and that leads up to verse 6. Let's look. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So, affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Now here in today's passage, we find five truths regarding Paul and his friends. And first is this. He says, we didn't seek glory from men. right? And that's really important because if you're in the ministry and you are indeed seeking the glory from men, then you're going to do whatever makes men like you and approve of you and praise you. And that's often the opposite of what pleases God and of what God approves of. If you really seek the glory from God and If you really put Him first above all else, then it'll mean that you're going to have less glory from men, both in the world and even sometimes in the church. Remember Nehemiah? Nehemiah and Paul were a lot alike, and both of them certainly didn't seek glory from men, not at all. And I was going to give a brief illustration from Nehemiah, but it grew. As As I went back and looked at Nehemiah... And so you get a long illustration from Nehemiah today. Because Nehemiah and Paul were so similar in their quest to honor God above all else. To honor God above men. So let's be inspired by Nehemiah for a bit, remembering that Paul was just like Nehemiah. So, Nehemiah, if you remember, Nehemiah was a Jewish man who was a cupbearer of the king of Babylon around the year 445 B.C., At that point, it's been about 140 years since Nebuchadnezzar came in and conquered Judah and tore down the walls of Jerusalem, which was utterly devastating. 
However, it was 70 years ago that some of the Jews were able to go back into the land and rebuild the temple under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Ezra, which is all very good. However, even after all these years, the walls and the gates of the city of Jerusalem were still in ruins. And that's very serious because that meant that Jerusalem, God's holy city, the city where the temple of the Lord was located, it was a city without defense. So the city was like a sitting duck for any old enemy that came along because no decent stand could be made against your enemies without a defense wall. This is very, very serious. Well, Nehemiah... Many, many, many miles away, he heard about this. And while Nehemiah had grown up in Babylon and had never actually been to Jerusalem himself, Nehemiah's heart was burdened for the Lord's work and for the Lord's people. And so it's at that point that Nehemiah knew what he needed to do. He needed to go to Jerusalem and lead the people in rebuilding the broken down walls of the city of Jerusalem. Now that's clearly what God wanted him to do, and so that's what he did. He went, and he not only led the way in rebuilding that wall, which was an incredible task, but he also led the way in upholding the righteousness of God amongst the people. Result, God's glory. Yes, God's glory and a whole lot of enemies. Which shouldn't surprise any of us. Because... A lot of enemies should be expected if you put God's glory first above men. Remember what happened? Nehemiah came to Jerusalem and he led the people into rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. However, as Nehemiah 2.19 says, When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and they despised us. Now please note that these three guys are very, very formidable enemies. It's believed that Sanballat was the governor of Samaria just to the north. Tobiah was most likely the governor of Ammon, which was to the southeast of Jerusalem. And Geshem was a powerful chief in northwest Arabia, where he ruled over a confederation of Arab tribes that included Edom, Moab, and the southern parts of Judah. So we find that these three men represented the rulers of provinces to the northeast to the northwest and to the southeast of Jerusalem. Enemies are literally all around them. So Nehemiah is doing the right thing. He's doing the God-honoring thing. And it doesn't take long before powerful enemies are surrounding him. Why? He's a God-pleaser. This is what happens. Even so, under Nehemiah's bold leadership, the people continue rebuilding the wall. And as they did so, the opposition and the mockery and the threats continued. So much so that the Jews who are rebuilding the wall are now fearing for their lives. Nehemiah chapter 4 reveals that the enemies of Nehemiah were furious and indignant. The Hebrew word for fury means to burn, to be kindled, and to become inflamed against. The word indignation means to become enraged, provoked, and intensely disturbed. So this is real hatred going on, uncontrollable rage, explosive fury. Why? Because Nehemiah is glorifying God. That's how it works, see. Nehemiah 4.16 says, So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held spears, shields, and wore armor. The next verse says, I love this. Those who built on the wall loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other hand they held a weapon. Why? 
Because Nehemiah was glorifying God. So enemies are all around Nehemiah. Enemies are all around the people. All around them. And it's very, very serious. I mean, they're working with one hand. They're holding a weapon in the other hand. But look, Nehemiah not only had enemies from without. He had enemies from within. In chapter 5, Nehemiah had to rebuke the nobles and the rulers of Jerusalem for their ungodly behavior. Think about that. Rebuking the nobles and rulers. And then in chapter 6, Nehemiah has to deal with his enemies who are trying to bait him, trying to lure him into compromise. And note this, if Nehemiah was trying to please men in any way, then he would have taken the bait because they were tricky, very tricky in their schemes. But Nehemiah is only out to glorify God, even at a very high cost, so he doesn't take that bait. Also in chapter 6, you can go back and look at that if you want, but also in chapter 6, a friend, a friend whom Nehemiah trusted, tried to cause Nehemiah to compromise. Look, Nehemiah 6, nine says this. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehatabal, who was a secret informer. He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night, they're coming to kill you. That is a trap. See, Shemaiah was an enemy who looked like a friend. Shemaiah was a wolf in sheep's clothing. He was a fraud who had sold out to the opposition and now he's going to try to use his influence, his friendship with Nehemiah, the man of God. Nehemiah, I can hear him. Oh, Nehemiah, my good friend. You're in danger. I'm a prophet of God. And in the, in the name of the Lord, you're in danger because your enemies want to kill you. And Nehemiah, good old buddy, they plotted and schemed to come at night and kill you. And I know this because, again, I'm a prophet of God. I know what you need to do. Let's go. Let, let, let's meet together in the house of God within the temple and let's go close the doors of the temple quickly, friend, brother. Let's get going. Let's, let's save your life, good buddy. What's he trying to do here? Two things. First, he hopes to cause Nehemiah to run and hide and show himself a coward. But men who please God aren't cowards. They don't run and hide from danger. Second, He hopes to cause Nehemiah to disregard God's law in order to save his own life. See, Nehemiah wasn't a priest, and therefore he was forbidden for entering into the temple. And him entering into the temple, even in order to save his own life, would have been a serious, very serious compromise on his part. It seems that Shemaiah might have been permitted to enter the temple himself because he might have been from a priestly family. And so it seems that he's trying to lure Nehemiah into compromise and into breaking the law of God. I mean, had Nehemiah entered into the temple, he would have been guilty of committing a capital offense. Note that many, many, many people would have done that very thing at the drop of a hat. Men pleasers. If I hide in there, they're not going to find me. I mean, there's no way they'll look for me in there and my life will be spared. Sure, I'll hide in there. What, it's against the law of God? Well, God will understand. Let's go. Many people would have done that, but not Nehemiah. No, why? Because he seeks to glorify God first. Nehemiah would rather lose his life than sin. He would rather risk his life than risk losing the pleasure of God in his life. He's not willing to compromise even at the price of his life. Sound familiar? I mean, that's Paul. 
What an example. And even though Nehemiah initially doesn't realize that Shemaiah was paid off to proclaim this false prophecy in order to frighten Nehemiah and cause him to sin, look, Nehemiah had enough discernment and enough conviction to glorify God alone to reject Shemaiah's message, to reject this thing that would cause him to sin. Can't do it. It's a sin. I I can't do it, even if it costs me my life. Again, does that sound familiar? Look what Nehemiah then says, verse 11. Should such a man as I flee? Who is there such as I who would go into the temple and save his life? I will not go in. See, that's a man who seeks his glory from God and not from men. And even though Shemaiah looks like a friend, Nehemiah knows that he can't do what Shemaiah is suggesting. Why not? Because such men as he don't flee. Running and fleeing? No way. Breaking God's law to save myself? Never. I will not go in. God comes first. See, like Paul. Paul knew all about Nehemiah for sure. Soon the wall was completed, which was a clear miracle of God that was led by a man who was solely out to glorify God because a man who sought the glory of men wouldn't have done what Nehemiah did. Look what happened in Nehemiah chapter 13. He's already dealt with some very serious enemies from without and even some from within, but now he has to uphold the law of God and he has to take a stand for the glory of God amongst his own people, which is something that men who are out to glorify men don't do. Look what happened. Nehemiah left Jerusalem for a number of years. Then he came back to Jerusalem in Nehemiah 13.7. He discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. Nehemiah 13.8. And it grieved me bitterly, therefore I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So, So what's happening here? Well, It seems that the high priest was a massive compromiser, high priest, and he let Tobiah, the enemy Tobiah, make a room for himself in the temple of God. And there were some compromising reasons for that, which we won't go into, but think about that. These rooms in the temple were supposed to be used for the work of God alone, and they were supposed to be set apart for holy use only, but... Eliashib let Tobiah, a prominent, unrepentant Ammonite pagan, and a sinister, outspoken enemy of the work of God, he let him live in a room for himself in the courts of the temple of God. That's wretched, and it clearly is a blasphemous disregard for God and for the holiness of God. Well, Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem and he found out what was going on, and first he was grieved about it, and then he threw out Tobiah and all of his stuff out of the room, and then he cleansed that room. He's not going to negotiate with compromise, see? He's not going to sit back and wait for someone else to do something. No, he loves God too much to let this go. He loves God too much to watch God's house be defiled. No, God and God's glory is what Nehemiah was thinking about, and Nehemiah is sure to uphold that. Now, do you think Nehemiah offended Eliashib and Tobiah? When he did that? Do you think he probably offended a whole lot of other people who let this thing happen on their watch? I think he offended many. But because Nehemiah seeks to glorify God, he's willing to offend people so as to not offend God. 
This reminds me of Jesus when he cleansed the temple, right? Jesus did that for the glory of God the Father, but he sure offended a whole lot of people in the process. So be it. Why? Because when you seek to glorify God, you're going to offend people, and that just goes with the territory. Later on in chapter 13, Nehemiah saw sin happening, so he contended with the rulers. Later on, Nehemiah saw that people were sinning and they were defiling the Sabbath, so he contended with the people again. And he also warned them, and he said, if you do that again, I'm going to lay hands on you. And that's something that people who seek to glory, the glory from God, uh, that's something that people who seek the glory from men do not do. They don't contend for the righteousness of God, and they don't warn people about sin when it's unpopular to warn people about sin. Note that his threat to lay hands on them most likely meant that he would have to have them forcibly removed and that he would have them punished in a legal way. He's not saying, I'm going to punch you in the face. Even Maybe he was. No. Even so, Nehemiah risked these people not liking him very much, right? Is it worth it? See? Hey, what's more important, God's approval or man's? God's. Nehemiah and Paul. Nehemiah is our example right now. Nehemiah is consumed with glorifying God even when it cost him some approval ratings. Why do I bring up Nehemiah? Because Paul's just like Nehemiah. Paul too seeks to glorify God first, way above the glory of men. And like Nehemiah, Paul offends people because he glorifies God. And people hate Paul because Paul glorifies God. And people want to kill Paul because Paul glorifies God. And Paul has suffered greatly because Paul glorifies God. But God's glory is worth all of it for Nehemiah and for Paul and his companions and for us. And we do well to remember that. One last example from Nehemiah. I have to do this. Okay. Not about not seeking the glory of men, but of God. At the end of Nehemiah chapter 13, Nehemiah found out that some of the people married pagan women, which was a serious sin against the very clear commands of God. Why? Because one sure way of corrupting their faith was through a divided marriage, one that brought religious compromise into the very center of the home and of the family. So God warned them they didn't listen to their own eternal spiritual detriment. But look, no one was calling the people out on this grave sin, men pleasers that they were. But then Nehemiah, the God pleaser, came along. Look what he did in Nehemiah thirteen twenty five. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your own sons or yourselves. I say, go Nehemiah. Nehemiah can't sit back and watch sin happen. No, he loves God too much and he loves these people too much. So look, he cursed them. That doesn't mean that he cussed and swore at them. It doesn't mean that. It means that he called them out on their sin. He dressed them down. He rebuked them. He made them feel small like they should have felt because of their sin. This could also mean that he called down curses on them from God, which was a way for him to point out their grave sin against the Lord and for God to judge them in light of that sin. Nehemiah also struck them. This action isn't like a punch or a slap, but most believe that this is talking about the legal punishment that some of these people received for so blatantly breaking the law of God. 
how these punishments were justly inflicted upon these people because they transgressed God's clear law. And as a result, some of them were beaten with stripes, with whips, according to the law of God. Nehemiah also pulled out their hair. All right, how can you justify that kind of behavior? I was going to call Mike up with his beard and give a living example of that. I won't do that. How can you justify that kind of behavior? In pulling out the beard, um, the, you're pulling out the hair. It's probably talking about pulling out the hair of the beard. And it seems that pulling out the hair from the beard of men was a regular form of punishment. So the loss of the beard was seen as a disgrace. And having that as a form of punishment was a way to embarrass the offender so that they don't do the offense again. And so it seems clear that Nehemiah isn't being ungodly and he's not losing his temper here. No, he's not. He's just passionate about God. And he's passionate about the things of God. And he's using his authority to punish these lawbreakers appropriately for that culture. And he's also trying to keep others from doing that same sin. Yes, he offended many people and probably made many enemies, but he's not seeking the glory from men. He's seeking glory from God. And therefore, he deals with sin appropriately in that culture with passion and with conviction. And look, Paul was the same way. The Apostle Paul was the same way. He certainly didn't seek glory from men, and so should we be the same way as people who are seeking to glorify God first and not men. We hate sin. We speak the truth. We contend for the truth. We seek God's glory above the approval of people. People may hate us, but God is pleased, and that's all that truly matters. People may lie about us, but God knows, and that's enough, see? Paul is just like Nehemiah. And Paul knew all about Nehemiah, I have no doubt. Paul is just like Nehemiah, and we should be more like Paul and Nehemiah. Where, oh where, are the people who don't seek glory from men, but who seek glory from God alone? Where are they? Where are they? Where are the Nehemiahs of the day? Where are the Pauls of the day? No. Don't put your hands on people and pull out their hair. Don't do that. Not appropriate in our culture. However, put God first and live for the glory of God, knowing that that will come with a price. So be it, because he's worth it. J.I. Packer says this. He says, What we must bear in mind here is that the conventions and expectations of our smooth, post-Christian, relativistic, secular Amoral Western culture are not necessarily in line with the truth and wisdom of God. Thou shalt be nice didn't rule Nehemiah's behavior. Rather, thou shalt be faithful and zealous for God ruled Nehemiah's behavior. Would Moses, David, Jesus, or Paul ever have qualified as Mr. Nice Guy? The assumption so common today that niceness is the essence of goodness needs to be exploded. Nehemiah shouldn't be criticized for thinking that there are more important things in life than being nice. And he's right. People today think that being nice, as they defined it, trumps being godly. That being nice means that you can't ever be angry at sin or or speak up about any kind of sin. That being nice means that you can't uphold the righteousness of God. That being nice means that you can't ever offend anyone by speaking the truth and by living the truth of God. But that's wrong. And while they will know that we are Christians by our love, oh yes, hey, love isn't a sappy thing. No, 
Real love upholds the truth of God. And real love exalts God in the things of God, seeking His glory first and foremost. And real love helps others do the same. Woe to the church that the world dubs as nice as its top passion. Woe to the church that the world loves. Woe to the church that doesn't offend the sinful world around them with the truth of God. Woe to the church that puts up with unrepentant sin and preaches a a watered-down gospel and remains silent as sin is exalted and as Satan is very happy because they want to be seen as nice. No, like Nehemiah and Paul, we aren't here to get glory from men. We're here to glorify God. And that often means making some enemies from without And also from within. So be it. We didn't seek glory from men. Clearly, Paul. Clearly. As the haters ran him out of town, as they sought to kill him, as they beat him and stoned him and imprisoned him and despised him, clearly. And also as some even from within the church badmouthed him because they were jealous of him, because he saw through their hypocrisy and because he called out their sin. Clearly, what matters? Pleasing men or pleasing God? God. So stand up, fight sin, stand alone and don't compromise. Some here have lost friends because of their faith. Some here have lost jobs because of their faith. Some here have been ostracized from their own families. Because of their faith, so be it and keep it up. Christ is worth it. Christ is always worth it. We didn't seek glory from men. No, God is what matters and God sees. And that was true for Nehemiah. It's true for Paul and his friends. And the question is, is it true for you? Is it true for us? Look, what people think doesn't matter. (laughs) What God thinks is all that truly matters. And our lives should reveal that truth. How? In how you talk and how you act and what you look at and what you fight against and what you give to and how you spend your time in in, in what you read and in how you treat people and where you spend your Sunday mornings and in a million other ways. Look what Paul adds at the end of verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from men either from you or from others. Look, that we might have made demands... When we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Very interesting. The word apostle literally means one sent out. The word specifically is talking about the 12 apostles and Paul who were sent out by Jesus specifically to lay down the foundation of the church. And generally it can refer to anyone who's sent out by God as, as his messengers, like missionaries are sent out today. Now we know that Paul was a true apostle of God, capital A, apostle. While Silas and Timothy were little A apostles, unlike Paul and unlike the twelve. But here, Paul uses his term generally to describe all three of them. And what's his point? The point is this, that Paul and his companions were among the Thessalonians to give something to them and not to take something from them, be it money or praise. So they didn't come making any demands as apostles, which clearly shows what their true motives were to glorify God and to glorify God alone. Look, I've heard of preachers who get asked to speak at different places, and they make all kinds of demands on people to speak at those places. I've heard of some who have been asked to go and speak overseas, and they are willing to do it, but they have demands. They, they demand first-class travel. They demand only American food, even though they're in Asia. 
They demand a certain type of bottled water. They demand a certain amount of money for their ministry, and usually it's a lot of money. I've heard that firsthand, and it's sick, and it's wrong. It's not right. What about serving the people? What about giving yourself freely? What about the gospel? No, it's about me and my glory and my comfort and my ease and my recognition. How sad. But guess what? That wasn't Paul and that wasn't his companions in any way. Even though they could have made some demands as apostles of Christ, which we're going to look at more clearly next week. But look, people who seek to glorify God are willing to sit in the bad seat on the crowded plane, and they're willing to serve relentlessly even when they are tired, and they're willing to eat whatever it is that's put in front of them, and they serve for the glory of God, even at great cost for them, for God, and for God's people, like Paul and his friends. We could have made demands, but we didn't, because it's not about us. It's about the Lord. Very good. Second, see we're at the second point now. Paul and his friends were gentle among the Thessalonians. And that's what you want from any spiritual leader like Paul was, right? Gentleness. Verse 7, we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. What a wonderful picture. The word gentle means placid, mild, easy, kind, heartfelt, and compliant. The word was used to describe medicine as soothing and as relieving. And that's how Paul and his friends were among the Thessalonian believers. I can hear the haters of Paul. Paul, he's mean. He's just mean. He says things that are offensive. You know, the gospel. He calls you out and he makes you feel bad because he he talks about sin. He offends people. Paul, he's just a meanie. But here, Paul reminds them of what they already knew. Paul and his fellow missionaries weren't mean. No, they, they loved greatly and they were gentle. And there's no denying that fact. They were gentle because that's how good Christian leaders act. Paul describes this gentleness when he says, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. That's a picture of true love, of tenderness, and of heartfelt care. It's a picture of a loving mother who takes her infant into her arms, warms that child with her own body heat, holds it close, and gives a part of her own self to that child lovingly, sacrificially, protectively, and tenderly. Well, that's how Paul and his friends were among the Thessalonian Christians. The word cherishes pictures a mother bird covering her chicks with her feathers and warming her chicks with her own body heat. And that's how Paul was with the Thessalonians. And even though he spoke the truth, which offended people, that's going to happen. The truth offends people. He still did that in love. And he was always gentle and loving and tender and kind. And he spoke the truth to them and he ministered amongst them. See, they knew he cared. They knew. They knew he loved them. They knew he was a man of God. And that's how it should be. Gentle. Does that describe you? You say, no, I'm just gruff. I'm brash. I'm rough around the edges. I'm prickly. Always have been. I always will be. That's just how I am. Well, that's certainly not an excuse because gentleness is a quality of a true believer and lame excuses won't change the truth that gentleness is a quality of a true believer. Christ Himself is our example and He was gentle and humble and meek and kind and gracious and caring. And we're called to be like Him just as Paul was like Him. In contrast to being hard and harsh and abrasive and mean and brash and cold. We were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother. What a godly quality to have. And again, while this is to be a quality of every Christian, how much more a spiritual leader like Paul and his friends were. Look, you should know 
that the Christians around you care about you by the way that they treat you. Gentle, kind, caring, tender, gracious, heartfelt. And the question is, do you know that? And are you a part of showing that to others around you? You should know also that your pastors care about you too as they mimic Paul and as they mimic Christ and exhibit these godly qualities, even in the midst of being strong and bold for the glory of God. Do you know that? What a challenge. What a challenge. I'm a glutton for punishment, so as I was thinking about this, I watched another video entitled, Mean Pastor. He was mean. This guy's preaching. A guy in the congregation was falling asleep. Seen that many times here. So the pastor got angry and he went off on the poor man revealing his true character. This is word for word what he said. Son, don't go to sleep while I'm talking. Hey, hey, hey. Don't lay your head back. I'm important. I'm somebody. That's what he said. Hey, I love you. Have I convinced you I love you? You better nod your head. You better stay awake. You listen to me. Sure. He then turns to, he's, he's going now. He turns to another man in the church. Where have you been? On the calendar, I'm supposed to marry you. What makes you think I'd marry you? You're one of the sorriest members I have. Word for word, that's what he said. You're not worth 15 cents. Do you know I love you? He says, I'm the real deal. <laughs> you can't get this in any other church in town. No, you can't. He then turned to the video person and berated him, something which I would never do. Thank you. Bless you. (laughs) But guess what? I mean, you can, it's on YouTube. (laughs) Paul never, ever, 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 ever would have done something like that. See? Yes, he would have spoken the truth, yes, but always in love and never out of anger. We were gentle among you and they knew it. For that's how God's people are, especially the leaders in the church who are supposed to lead by example. What a challenge. Third, Paul says, we imparted the gospel to you. Verse 8, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our very own lives because you have become dear to us. Yeah, that's the way it should be. We love you. And the result is that we imparted the gospel to you because that's what real love does. Isn't that true? Anybody? Uh, if you're a Christian and you love your lost friend, sibling, parent, child, co-worker, or anyone else, then the first thing that you should do if you really love them is tell them the gospel, the good news of Christ. Because that's the most important thing. For how can they be saved if they haven't heard the gospel? So Paul says, we had deep affection and love for you, so it was our great joy and pleasure to tell the good news of Christ to you. What do any pastor or Christian who won't do that? Because that's what love does. So look, Jesus is God the Son who came here and became a man. Think about that. 100% man, 100% God at the same time. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, but then He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And good news, everyone... Everyone who believes in Him in true, saving, repentant faith will indeed be saved from the wrath to come. How good, how good is that? 
How? Especially in light of the fact that we've all sinned and that the wages of sin is death, eternal, eternal wrath, eternity in hell, eternal separation from God. How is this possible? Because of who Jesus is, God and man at the same time, and because of what he actually accomplished on that cross. Good news, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Amen? <laughs> and Jesus specializes in healing the greatest disease known to men. The disease of sin that condemns all to hell. And that's why he came, not to heal those who don't want him or, or who don't think they need him, but to rescue those who know that they are sick and who know that they need him. I'm dead, I'm lost, I'm nothing, but Jesus can save me. He didn't come for those who are well, he came for those who are sick. Good news, because we're all sick and doomed because of our sin. But Jesus gives hope to undeserving sinners like us. So what happened on the cross? This. On the cross, God the Father treated Jesus as if he were a sinner by charging to his account the sins of everyone who would ever believe, including us. He didn't deserve to die. We didn't deserve to live. But he changed places with us as believers. In other words, God took the perfect substitute, Jesus, put him in the place of the sinner and punished the substitute instead of us. So for every believer, we give Jesus all our sins which condemned us to eternity in hell, which he then took and was punished brutally for on the cross as our substitute. And in return, his righteousness, his perfect life is imputed, reckoned, or credited to our spiritual account. And now, because you have Christ by grace through faith in him, the sin that condemns you is paid for in full. And good news, God now looks at you through a Christ lens as a believer. And he sees the perfection of Christ. He sees someone who is now perfectly dressed for heaven because you as a believer are in Christ. And our call is to believe on Him in true repentant faith for salvation, forgiveness, and life. Surrender to Him. Say, Lord, I'm desperate. I can't do it on my own. Save me. I believe in You. Save me. And He will if you mean it. When you cry out to Him in repentant faith and mean it, you will be saved. And that, of course, leads to a life of loving obedience to this God who saves undeserving sinners like us, right? I mean, Christians are those who love Him, right? In light of who He is and because of what He's done for us, we love Him and we want to glorify Him. That's the mark of a true believer. Well, because Paul loved the Thessalonians, he made sure that he shared this soul-saving good news with them. The best news there is in the history of the world because, again, that's what love does. Look, Christ is your answer. Christ is your only answer. And he's here for you. Won't you surrender to him? Give it up. Stop holding on. Give it up to Christ. Surrender to him. And you'll not only be saved, you'll find a life of meaning, purpose, joy, and hope, and peace, and love. Fourth, Paul says that we not only imparted the gospel to you, the Thessalonians, but we also imparted our lives to you. That's a mark of a true spiritual leader, of either Paul and his friends or any pastor today. The word lives speaks of their entire selves, their inner beings. And it tells us that along with their preaching, they gave their full lives to the Thessalonian Christians. And that's a true standard for any real ministry. You give your whole self. 
You're all in. You don't hold anything back. You love deeply and you love intensely. Yeah, ministry like that is costly, but so be it. And it's a great antidote to those who treat ministry like a job. Because it's not a job. It's a calling. Look, Paul and his friends loved deeply and they gave sacrificially and they didn't hold anything back. The people knew that. They knew that Paul and his friends loved them because that love was clearly seen as they gave themselves to God and to others. John Piper wrote a book for pastors entitled, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And he's absolutely right. No, we're not. We're servants of the Most High God. And we're called to give everything to our calling that God has for us. It's not a time clock thing. No, it's, I'm off at four, so don't bother me. Don't call me on my, on my time off. No, no, no. Fire that pastor who says that. The call to ministry is a call to give your life in service to God and others. And you love those that you're ministering to deeply. And if you don't, you're not fit for ministry. We imparted our lives for you. That's the model. How's it seen? Well, as Paul says here, in the pastor giving the people the gospel with passion and conviction first, and then in the pastor giving out the truth of God faithfully, biblically, passionately, and carefully, and then in him giving his life to the people where they can see clearly that the godly shepherding heart of love in him. He loves me, I can see it clearly. He works hard to give me the truth of God. He cares for me. He's godly and kind even when he offends me with the truth. He, he serves and it's clear that this isn't a job for him. No, it's his life. It's, it's his calling. That was Paul with the Thessalonians and he's an example for every true pastor today. It's not talk. You know I love you. <laughs> After just berating you from the pulpit. It's seen. So the Thessalonians knew this to be true of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So the haters could talk all they wanted, but the truth was very, very clear. They gave their lives to us. They love us. Fifth truth about Paul and his friends, you, the Thessalonian believers, became very dear to us. So look, Paul went to Thessalonica because he first loved the Lord and God called him to go. Paul also had an intense passion to see the lost come to saving faith in Christ. On on top of that, we find that after Paul and his friends had labored and served hard among the Thessalonians, look, a deep affection grew inside the missionaries for these Thessalonian believers. Now previously in verse 8, Paul said that they had affectionately longed for them, which speaks of a strong affection for someone and of loving someone very, very much. And now here, Paul says that they've become very dear to them, beloved to them, which indicates a deep and affectionate godly love that the missionaries had for the Thessalonians. Hey, that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. Pastors should love their church deeply. And it should be clear. And I pray that it's clear for all of us. Piper says, The life-giving pastor is a man of God whose heart is ever a thirst after God, whose soul is ever following hard after God, whose eye is single to God, and in whom by the power of God's Spirit, the flesh and the world have been crucified, and his ministry is like the generous flood of a life-giving river. Oh, is that all? <laughs> I mean, what a, what a challenge. What a wonderful, sobering challenge. 
So the true pastor must love God intensely, and then he must love the people he shepherds deeply too, like a generous flood of a life-giving river. And it should be clear. You were dear to us, and it showed. You were dear to us, and they knew it. You were dear to us, so we worked hard to give you God's truth, and we served passionately to help in any way we can to show you the glorious love of Christ, leading, feeding, protecting, serving, spending, and being spent, giving our lives to you because we love God and because we love you. And if that's not clear, then fire that man because he's not fit to be a true pastor. Paul and his friends set the example here. And again, it's a great challenge to me. And it's a great challenge to all the elders, pastors here. Because while I love you dearly, and I do, I earnestly desire to show it more. This is a challenge. What an example Paul and his friends are. It's a great, this has great application for me. It has great application for all of us, for every true believer Lord, help us to examine ourselves. Lord, help us to never seek glory from men, but to only seek the glory of God whom we love and the God who sees us. And Lord, help us to be gentle. And Lord, help us to share the gospel with the lost around us. And Lord, help us to give our lives to the Lord and to give our lives to one another. And Lord, help us to love deeply God first and then those around us, one another. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Help us, Lord, to seek your approval first. Help us, Lord, to be godly, genuine, gentle, loving, and to care for one another and for our elders here at Faith Community Church to love deeply and intensely and to give our lives for Faith Community Church, this beloved body, and for you. And Lord, help all of us to do the same. May we serve well. May we glorify you. May you use us greatly. And uh, may you be well pleased with us. We love you. We ask you to bless us now. In Jesus' name, amen.